0: This is the Cut the Check Podcast.
1: Welcome to the UAC Podcast. Uh, Joseph Johnson with you, as always, joined by our new author and friend, Antonio Scalante. Antonio, thank you for joining me again today. Thank you for having me. So nice to be able to kind of go through this book with you. So the new book, Power... Uh, and by the way, has it, we haven't, uh, as of this recording it hasn't been put out yet, but by the time people see it, the book will be uh, out. And what we've decided to do, you and I have decided to do is to go through this book <clears throat> chapter by chapter. So we're, I've actually got the book sitting next to the file, sitting next to me, kind of looking it over and, uh, uh, the introduction, the first chapter is the mechanics of sport or power. I'm sorry. Uh, a power in sport is uh, um, a more of an overview kind of idea, and then now we're getting into the specifics of the max max effort method. Uh, so, uh, you know, a lot of people, especially in the United States, I think that the, this these ideas on uh, strength are misunderstood to some degree, and there's debate, and there's always this question over how much strength is needed. Uh, for an athlete in a particular sport or how much strength is needed in this particular lift for this particular sport because you know different sports may require uh, different things they obviously they do right Uh, so football would require a different strength level than let's say soccer um, or, or any other kind of comparison like that so that's a debate then there's also the question of how do you develop the strength? Should you use max effort method, you know, a lot to do that with your lifts? And, and in truth, that only relates primarily to like the bigger lifts, like the squat, you know, maybe a deadlift bench press, and then the Olympic lifts, it doesn't really relate to other lifts necessarily. And so I want to kind of get your thoughts on that too. And then, so if, how does it get developed? What exercises is that used in? And then how do you know? How do you know when uh, you want to switch over to velocity? So there's a bunch of questions. So I'm going to start from the top. When you're talking about uh, the max effort method, explain it for me first before we get into anything else. What's the max effort method? And and, and this has been popularized by Louis Simmons uh, primarily. It was initially probably 1st talked about in uh, practice, science and practice of strength training. Uh, sorry. I think Sajorski in 95. I th- that, he's the first person that I saw use that term. I agree. Explain it to me.
0: In very simple terms, when we refer to the Max Seifert method, we're looking at very heavy compounds lift with loads above 80% of wide max. So the primary goal is to lift pretty significant amount of weight, regardless of the speed of muscle contraction or the velocity of muscle contraction. So that is, if if you want to, that's the way of going about traditional strength training, not necessarily strength training for sport. If you look at powerlifters, if you look at some extent, weightlifters or strongmen, that's what they primarily do to get stronger. However, there's a pretty broad variety of different ways of going about Applying the max effort method, the may or might not fit the needs of different athletes and that's what I think that's what I think the majority of the issue is not just in the United States of America like worldwide uh, too often we focus too much on just strength and strength development without looking at the bigger picture and how much of that strength I can actually use with my athletes to improve performance in the field of play and that's where different applications of the max effort method come into play
1: so so there's a distinct difference in strength training for powerlifting or Olympic weightlifting and in uh, training for sport. How does that differ?
0: The difference is the goal of strength training for a powerlifter, for instance, is simply increasing strength. and. Absolute strength, so the maximum amount of force a muscle can generate in a dynamic contraction, a concentric muscle contraction, uh, which corresponds to the, so to speak, the competition lift, so a wire max in a squat, in a bench, in a deadlift. Uh, that way developing strength is also known as uh, high load and low-velocity strength, which is extremely functional to develop very high level of muscle tension, so the muscles can overcome greater amount of inertia and greater amount of resistance, However, the problem with that is that the dynamic of muscle contraction, although technically can still be considered concentric because muscle are shortening under load, is closer to a quasi-isometric muscle contraction. So the velocity of muscle contraction is very, very low. Uh, If you look at a powerlifter attempting a very heavy squat, the single rep lasts for a good amount of time, like close to or more than a second. So it's a very slow lift. And being slow makes that the strength that you're developing doesn't really carry over to any other form of muscle contraction that requires more rate of force development. So strength to be generated in a faster manner, which is very common in sport. And that's where the effect of velocity comes into play. And it's not just simply velocity-based training. It's the moment we start considering load and velocity end-in-end together, that's when we gain strength in a way that is going to impact speed, power agility another form of like more dynamic muscle
1: action so this kind of brings up the question then how does the strength get developed um and this is something that i've kind of i've always uh uh, i've been asked the question and it's kind of an weird i don't say a weird thought but it's like how did you develop it? Did you develop it using the max effort, where you're using 90% loads a lot, or did you develop the strength? Maybe like using the one by twenty in in your GPP, which would be something Duckyesis would recommend, or you're using loads at 70 or 80%. As you said, the velocity in those loads is going to be different uh, at 60%. Even though you're going to failure, the first so many, you know, reps are going to be at a higher velocity what's the difference there how do you like how do you articulate the effect is that because obviously if you go to failure those last couple reps are going to be just kind of similar to the max effort method in its speed right how does that interplay with the the idea that the reps that are before that are faster how do those play off of each other
0: that's a great question i think uh the maximum effort method applies along a continuum that goes from very heavy strength training to velocity-based training. And right in between, we have what I personally consider to be the most appropriate application of the max effort method for strength training uh, in athletics, is it's known as cat or compensatory acceleration training, which means that you're still using heavy weights, close to or above 80% of water, <laughs> rarely above 90 however, because at that point the velocity really gets compromised. Uh, but your intention is to move the bar as far as you possibly can on the way up, rep after rep. And that's a way of training that was really made popular by uh, Dr. Fred Hatfield, uh, mm, known, as, yeah. known as Dr. Squat, because of yep. several world records in the back squat. Uh, and evidence shows that that's, that's a way to develop both strength and power at the same time. So it's much more functional to uh, improving performance in sport. However... That can only be done if the proper load is selected, but also the proper number of reps and rest between sets is selected. Because like you said, uh, this, it's not like there's no point, but there's less benefit in doing more reps if the last reps are fatigued and therefore there's lower compared to do less reps, but all at a very high level of speed. So it's not just about saying, oh, move the bar as fast as you can, and that's enough. It's a question of managing training volume to decrease the number of reps, buffer the load so that the athletes can still move fast, allow enough rest between sets, and that alone will suffice to make a difference between just general strength training and strength training for sport. Then we can take it to a whole next level where we implement velocity-based training, which, in my opinion, is a great way to go about training the younger athletes because the load are lighter and they develop the CNS in a much more complete and well-rounded manner that prepares them for heavier loads in the future and at that point we're bringing the approach to a far extreme where like load is no longer the main important key factor velocity is and load comes as a consequence
1: so would you say and, and by the way let me i'm gonna take a little side road here uh transfer of training from dr bandar is kind of Uh, One of the texts that that you use just where he he answers the question or he tries to answer the question, how strong is strong enough in a a particular lift? And, uh, you know, he'll kind of like what you're saying in sport for a particular sport, he'll say, okay, this squat is enough. You know, you don't need to be any stronger than that or this bench press, whatever it is. But when you're talking about a younger athlete, and a lot of people say they need to get stronger. But one of the things that he recommends, and you just alluded to this, was that he recommends velocity training even for the young athlete, even though they're not that strong. And and as he says, it develops strength on its own. Correct. Could you talk about that? Like what you just said, um, even with a younger athlete, and you're, and you're using velocity with it, or faster loads, uh, is there any, we know the pros, are there any cons to that? Are there any negatives to that? How does that work?
0: It's a very fascinating topic. Um, to some extent, when you're working with uh, younger athletes, and for younger athletes, I mean, anywhere between 10, 11 years old to 17, 18, 19 maximum uh, years old, um, you, you're primarily developing inter, intra- and intramuscular coordination, motor unit recruitment synchronization, uh, there's very little that is done or can be done to develop uh, functional hypertrophy, so developing larger muscles, which com- comes into play much later in an athlete career when you really need very high levels of strength. To develop the necessary amount of strength to compete in sport, velocity-based training suffice, and it carries over to a much more broad variety of uh, not just disciplines, but just activities in sport. If you train at the right velocity, you're more likely to become faster, more explosive, jump higher, throw farther. So it's much more beneficial. And another advantage that comes with it is that velocity-based training tend to result in less uh, muscle gain or less, less of an hypertrophic response. So you very much increase your level of strength and power without increasing your body weight by a lot. So your power to weight ratio increases, and that's a very good advantage to have when you're younger because you still don't know what path you're going da- to go down to and how much strength you'll need in the future, but at least you preserve your explosiveness as solid as it can be. Then when athletes turn 18, 19, 20, and maybe they get involved into sports such as uh, throwing events in track and field, American football, rugby, where they absolutely need even higher level of strength, at that point working on muscle hypertrophy, working on uh max effort method with heavier loads it might become an option and at that point you can add uh super maximally centric training you can add all, all those techniques that will improve strength but muscle mass at the same time
1: so you would say that uh the athlete would be using either uh, at the younger uh, maybe a mixture of the uh the sub maximal effort strength training along with velocity training is that kind of the idea
0: yeah, primarily velocity-based training in the form of either compensatory elevation training, okay. or even just plyometrics, something that is just purely more explosive.
1: So it would be more more uh, of that the velocity nature really than anything else, even. Absolutely. We, now, I'm going to give you another one, other quick rabbit hole here too. With that being uh, the case, then the athlete would then be kind of needing to rotate movements. I would assume a certain amount of time, like the squat would have to change a little bit, like it would, it would, there might be some differences. You might do it with bands. You might do it with step-ups. Am I right about that? Or would you stay with an exercise for a good amount of time, the same exercise trying to increase velocity and maybe putting a higher load, increasing that velocity? How You you know what I mean? What, what would you recommend there?
0: I would probably look at it more in terms of uh, the learning experience itself and the motor learning and development, So if we're looking at athletes who are committed to sports where strength training plays a major role, I would probably stick to the very basic exercise and learn them very, very well to make sure that the modern learning is very well consolidated and those athletes will be able, once they get older, to overload the movement to a much greater extent. But if you're working with athletes that are more like, so to speak, like, Multifunctional, three-dimensional athletes in sports with a lot of change of direction, acceleration, deceleration, or sports that don't require a lot of strength, at that point, I will definitely opt to change exercise as often as possible and change the angles of work to create more variety. So it's more like a modern learning approach than anything else.
1: And it's kind of what like Dr. Bandar-Chuk re- uh uses and recommends where You know, especially with the higher level athletes where they adapt to a velocity program in two to four weeks on average, uh, he'll rotate the movement. So they and and he'll rotate the combination. So he might use one Olympic lift variant and then a variant of the squat for just as an example. And then the next month or the next cycle, he might use a step up and then a different Olympic lift variant. And he'll do that all year long. And he said what he's looking for is actually to see what combinations of exercises the athlete responds to best so he's constantly kind of changing that mixture to see if there's a particular recipe the athlete responds the best to to give him more insight into how the athlete um responds okay so i i I kind of mentioned this earlier and this is kind of where this thing takes us is when you're training for strength and this is going to vary obviously by sport but how, do, how does the how does the, the the athlete or the coach know how how m- much strength is enough? Like, you know, obviously, you know, I just saw that I think it's Julius Maddox is is training to break the world record in the bench at eight hundred pounds raw. Obviously, Julius can't move very fast. So, uh, what is the wh- where's the point of like n- no more value? I guess.
0: That's a, I think that's a million dollar question. Like everyone would love to have an answer. Um, I think the simplest and the most effective answer would be strength per se never becomes an issue as long as that strength corresponds to an improve, a tangible improvement in power output. So as long as you can, as long as you're certain as a strength coach that so to speak, every pound that you gain on a squat will correspond in an improvement in peak power output. The more weight you can put on the bar, the better it is. Also because in terms of injury prevention, the more uh, structural integrity you can develop within your muscle tendon complex, the more resilient to injury you will be and the stronger you will be overall. However, the problem is the moment a strengthening program starts to shift from being uh well comprehensive and well-rounded to be very specific on strength, that strength gain might take over the development of power and speed and agility. And at that point there might be a point of diminishing return where you don't no longer gain an advantage by getting stronger. Because you're getting stronger but you're also getting slower.
1: So training like a power lifter to get stronger and then training like an athlete to get stronger are two different things. Yes, completely a, different things. And a lot of times the power lifter is only doing those lifts where the athlete is doing those lifts. And in addition, he's doing jumps, med ball throws uh, and he's also participating in his sport. And, And like for an American football player, he's also probably running year round different distances. So a lot of that's going on. So you correct me if I'm wrong, there's a symbiosis between those, the strength and then the other activities that he's involved in. Yep. Where and he's using a like you said he's using a even if he's not using velocity based training he's using a higher velocity of lifts in his strength training instead of ninety percent or you know or above uh, is is that the best way to characterize the difference between the two and the way that they should be is that the powerlifter is only training mainly in this ninety percent zone. And he's training, and it's slow. It has to be, right? By its very nature, it's 0.6. Yeah. Is it 0.6 meters per second or slower?
0: I think they go even below 0.3.
1: Okay. So so they're they're training, and it's really slow. And if you continue to do that in the absence of uh, other other strength training or other explosive activities, the nervous system gets slower and slower. Am I correct? Correct. Now, if you were to do something like the the what uh, – um, Uh, Yuri, uh, Dr. Verashansky, called the the contrast method where he has the athlete do uh, a maximal squat, like two or three reps at 90%, and then go over and do a depth jump. That's different.
0: That's almost like a post-activation potentiation. It's even a more advanced technique of strength training.
1: So that one, if I'm understanding correctly, that's not going to slow you down. That's going to make you more explosive, right?
0: Absolutely, as long as it's down over a longer period of time because that... uh, Post-activation effect, so that priming of the CNS to be more explosive, only lasts for that short amount of time of a training session. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you gain is just is not the benefit of the heavy squats; is the benefit of the most explosive jumps that you do afterward. So, if you repeat that over and over over a prolonged period of time, that will make you more powerful. So, if it's implemented correctly, that's a great benefit for athletes.
1: So so it's it's really it's it's the conditions under which this ensuing depth jump is done. It's not the squat. It, and it's it's
0: an elite world class athlete from everyone else. Their genes make them quicker, react faster, and more explosive. What if there was a way to, in a sense, turn oh, on those elite athlete genes in the average person? Recent advances in genomic research and sports nutrition have proven this is now possible. Introducing MyoSync by Neutromic Sport Nutrition. Multiple studies show it increases quickness, explosiveness, and strength. In most cases, your vertical increases by at least one inch an hour after it's taken. Through a proprietary blend of ingredients, MyoSync in effect flips the switch on those genes that make you jump higher, run faster, and lift heavier weights. Here are several MyoSync testimonials. This is Daniel Stokes, he's a sprinter. What was your best time before we started training this season with MyoSync?
1: Uh, 21.5.
0: And what's your best time of today?
1: 20.7.
0: Could you um, explain to us um, what the, uh, the fast with muscle supplements done for you, MyoSync?
1: It made me more explosive. It helped with my reaction time off the ground, I bring my knees up quicker, and I continue to progress. This is Matt Tomey, Head Strength and Conditioning Coach for Football and Men's Basketball at Michigan Tech. If you haven't tried Neutromic Sport Nutrition's supplement Myosync yet, you're definitely missing out. I've had athletes here um, try the supplement and really enjoy the benefits. Uh, including an immediate improvement in vertical jump of about one inch. MyoSync really stands out with its ability to improve power output, speed, reaction time, even potentially quick decision making. If you haven't checked out this unique supplement yet, uh, go ahead and pick up a bottle of MyoSync and, and give it a shot and just see for yourself. Here is lead formulator Rick
0: explanation of MyoSync.
1: Myosync evolved out of the neuroproteomic research we conducted starting back in 2005 uh, to uh, nutritionally boost the speed strength traits of well-trained athletes. These speed strength traits could include things like reaction time, starting power, uh, maximal speed, uh, quickness and agility, and also fine motor skills. Double-blind placebo studies as well as many outcome studies have been conducted on well-trained athletes from many sports and of many ages. The results of this research have shown a sizable boost in muscle contractions as well as the synchronization of these muscle contractions during speed strength activities. Is the depth jump but it's more importantly the conditions under which the depth jump gets done which is post you know a heavy 90 percent squat or a, a real heavy uh olympic lift or whatever the case is um that's the that's the, the 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 thing that we're worried that's the secret sauce if you will that's what we're after is the conditions yeah. under which because if you've already gotten up to a depth jump that's 44 inches which is you know yuri said you, you should not ever go higher because it doesn't benefit you but he said the way that you can actually continue to make get value out of that depth jump is by using that real heavy squatting yeah. first and that'll potentiate something that you otherwise had reached the limit on if you will yeah. or or limit to its benefit right so okay so in 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 most calendar years, how much do you think the max effort method should be part of the athlete's training? Now, I know this is going to be different depending on age, sport, uh, and train but can you give a general idea like how you would look at that? Like how much of the year max effort should be in the athlete's schedule or calendar?
0: So if uh, that's a great question, it can be answered in two different ways. If we're looking at the overall yearly volume of training, which also includes like conditioning, speed, power, and agility, and all the other different tools and the sport-specific training, at that point, I would say anywhere between 10 and 15%. So very little. However, if we normalize that by just the volume of strength training per se, so the volume of training that you do in the weight room, so to speak, Yeah. Um, I would say max effort method and repeated effort method, which are mostly methods that, are, that aim to develop just general strength, should be about 50% of what you do compared to another 50% of more explosive training, which includes like Olympic lifting, plyometrics and so on and so forth. And within 50%, I would say about maybe 30 to 40% is pure heavy lifting. And another 60% is mostly hypertrophy work to develop. And so to speak, hypertrophy, I'm referring to like functional hypertrophy, yeah. to develop the antagonist muscle to create muscle balance because we can't forget that we constantly tend to overload the same movement patterns in the weight room as well. It's mostly extension, it's extension, is squatting, is pulling. So we need to make sure that we overstress the importance of developing the antagonist muscle to create muscle balance. So that's a lot of volume that goes into it. But pure heavy lifting would be probably ten to fifteen percent of the overall volume. And if you just look at the weight room, maybe twenty to thirty percent of the overall volume.
1: You know, it's funny because that's kind of what I remember talking to Dr. Bandarchuk about it, and he said you know, even at the elite level, he said, you know, max effort maybe is 10 percent or so of the yeah. athlete's schedule. Uh, and, and he said in lower level athletes, it should not be a part of their schedule. He said it's kind of a, it, it would have a deleterious effect, a negative effect on them because it, it uh, affects the nervous system in a way. It makes an imprint on the nervous system that can't be undone. Yeah. So when you come back to it later, it won't be as effective or as novel to the nervous system as a stimulus. So, yeah, that's funny that you say that because that and that's not in a book. That's something it was a conversation that him and I had. I, always, I asked him, I'm like, you know, how did how should that look over the course of the year? And he goes, ah, 10 uh, and, percent and, and really not much more than that, even at the elite level and never at the lower levels. Uh, but and you see that that's something that's not adhered to in the United States very much at all. They they they're every, I would say I would dare say most programs are way above 10 percent of oh, the yeah. year. And with lower level athletes, they're definitely not doing it zero percent. <laughs> they're definitely using it, uh, and, and 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 it's not a great idea. I think that's something that's really important for people to to, to realize. Real quickly, um, what are the cautions with max effort method? Because as we know that the the possibility of you getting injured uh, are higher with max effort. Doesn't mean it's dangerous. What precautions or what thoughts should, you know, should the athlete have uh, using the max effort method?
0: I think more than um, risks associated with the maximum effort method per se, uh, the risk is coming into training with the maximum effort method. If your athletes possess like very important muscle imbalances or very big limitations in range of motion, that can become a potential problem because Training with heavier loads per set, as long as you follow a progression and you start, and um, I don't know, I'm just saying, a 60 70% of your water max, and then slowly build up, as long as your body gets used to it, it will get used to heavier loads and that will be safe for you. But if you begin that progression already having major imbalances, you'll get to the point where like one muscle overpowers the other, and that's when like big injuries in the weight room occur. Because... There are only two ways of getting hurt in a weight room. Either someone prescribes you too much weight, and that's on your coach. So if programming is done correctly, the weight should be safe. Or your movement mechanics is impaired because of either poor technique or muscle imbalances. So if you address those two things before, you even, in GPP, general physical preparedness, if you can address those things, uh, 90% you're safe. And if you allow me to, I would even take a step forward the conversation that you just had, uh, that we just had about the percentage of max effort method, uh, I completely agree with Dr. Bondarchuk, and I would say at the elite level, like elite level athletes or adult athletes that compete at national level or above, the vast majority of that maximum effort method, in my opinion, would be done with super maximum eccentric loads because that's what really benefits muscle stiffness, active muscle stiffness, and that will really translate into a significant improvement in, power output, and rate of force development.
1: So you actually think that that is the biggest percentage of the max effort method, which is kind of, wouldn't be obvious to everybody. Like, you know, so I'm glad you made that point. So of that 10 to 15%, you're saying a good, a large portion of that would be eccentric.
0: I I would bring it to the far extreme or say for some athletes, it would be almost exclusively eccentric because the concentric portion would be done either with a variation of velocity-based training Mm-hmm. Which might be submaximal and therefore not a real max effort, mm-hmm. or it will be done in very few sets or very few reps at ninety percent just to prime the central nervous system.
1: Yeah. But the yeah.
0: big bulk of volume should be done with super maximal loads eccentrically because it gives you the most return for your investment.
1: So, I, I don't. I won't go too far off the reservation on this, but I want to make a quick point there. And when you do that super maximal, obviously that's not ninety percent. We're talking a hundred plus. 120% and if, plus. And I if I remember correctly, you told me, you know, there was a kind of a starting place. You wouldn't dive right in at 140%. Where would you where would you have the athlete start at for his first year if he's if he's in max effort and he's using eccentric, super maximal eccentrics? What percentage would you start that at?
0: Oh, that's a great question. In the book, I actually put a small progression that I usually use for my athletes. I usually start eccentric work at eighty percent of one rep max. So, the the very first step is progressing to eighty percent. Yeah. That's a that's a step on its own. Yeah. But when then when an athlete gets comfortable performing sets of four to five reps at eighty percent, which should be expected, mm-hmm. at that point you start implementing, which is not technically eccentric. It's more like Submaximal eccentric or time under tension, yeah. where you lengthen the eccentric portion of the movement
1: sure,
0: up yeah. from an average to from two to four seconds on average. Mm-hmm. And when you can do a consistent amount of volume of training with slow eccentric, then eventually you move up to 90% and you do the same thing up until you get to the point of 100% where you can't do the concentric anymore. And at that point on, it becomes purely eccentric.
1: So, so the athlete is gonna—it's gonna take him a little while, and and, and actually, some of this would happen or occur over multiple off seasons. Sometimes, oh yeah, it could take years. Yeah, so you wouldn't be—you could—you it could take you several years to where you're up at one hundred and forty percent. Oh yeah, which which would be the—and let me make let us make that point too. That would be the high end, correct? One hundred and forty. Yeah,
0: I yeah. would say the eighty to one hundred can be a pretty steep curve if the athletes are already pretty strong yeah like you can get there maybe maybe in six to eight months of a well done strength training program but then when you go from 100 to 120 that's a whole year of training okay and from 120 to 140 that's another whole year of training because the it gets the more difficult it gets to control
1: yeah so you'd be looking at multiple years to even get up to that oh
0: yeah
1: absolutely and and then progress it from there when the 100 when the 140 actually becomes a bigger number uh, uh, than then when you started, uh, so I'm trying to think of maybe the best way, uh, to ask when you, um, when you're looking at different sports, uh, like, like, uh, cause a lot of, this is a question that comes up a lot and I'm curious to see what you think. Would you say that someone like uh, uh, an NFL lineman, a big guy, 300 plus pounds, should he be in max effort training more so uh, than other sports? Or does it, because a lot of people believe this, that he needs more strength, you know, max strength. But, you know, a lot of the greatest football players that are linemen are not necessarily the strongest guys, they're the fastest guys. So there seems to be like a little misunderstanding there that, yeah, he does need max effort strength, but that is not necessarily the right limiting factor for him playing well or being good. So I'm going to I'm going to throw like J.J. Watt would be an example. He's strong. Is he the strongest guy on the line in the NFL? Probably not. But his paycheck is the biggest. Why is that? Well, he's fast and strong. Can you talk about that? Like, is there a misconception there that like certain positions or certain sports require more should concentrate more on the max effort method or maximal strength? Uh, And could that be a negative? I guess I don't know. That's a
0: great question, and I'll 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 try to break it down in a way that is uh, a little bit easier to digest. So when we look at developing strength, it doesn't matter if we're looking at an endurance runner a triathlete, a football player, or a jumper, strength is trained in just one way. You have to use some somewhat of an heavier load, around 80% of water max, and you have to use compound lift for a short number of reps. That's how you develop strength on a broader approach. Yeah. Now, the method is going to be the same for every athlete, regardless of where they play or what they play. What's going to change is the overall volume of training spent doing strength training. Because every researcher in the field of predation, from O'Brien to Stone, Af, uh, Bonpa himself, Easterling himself in the book, uh, Block Prioritization, they make it very clear, like, you develop more strength using the same methods, just with a larger volume of training. The more you train, the more strength you develop. So alignment will do probably the same combination of maximum effort method, dynamic effort method, and maybe repeated effort method of a jumper or a sprinter, it will just do more volume per week and more volume per year, because it needs more development of those physical qualities. And that's one of the key points in the book. Uh, When the metric of power development is broken down by sport, we have uh, speed and power athletes, we have mixed athletes, and we have endurance athletes. And we see how it, how they change based on just sheer volume. The method is the same. It's just the combination of the overall volume is going to be different.
1: So it, it, it's not necessarily as big of a stark contrast as people might think.
0: No, it's not That's, at all.
1: Yeah, because there's there's that thought out there that, you know, that, that de- defensive back, he doesn't need as much strength training, but that lineman, he really needs a lot of strength. Um and I've always thought, well, you know, if he's faster than the other guy, um, the strength becomes not as valuable if you can't keep up with the other person. Yep. The other thing is, is that every year when they have, I don't know if they still do it, but they used to have like a strong a strength training contest for NFL oh. guys. And the guy who won was normally not a very good player. Yeah. So, obviously, that can't, not, that can't be the rate limiting factor then, right? There's other things involved. Yeah. And a lot of times, the guy who could, you know, bench press a ton, you know, bench press six hundred pounds, he couldn't move very well. So there's that balance. Do you? uh, I I guess do you see that that that's maybe one of the places where we're missing it the most, where we're focusing too much on strength.
0: Yeah. You know, where
1: where the where the athletes actually getting worse. Yeah. Okay.
0: And I think it's almost a paradox because. And this is not, uh, uh, by any stretch of imagination, it's not a critique to the American system or the European system, it's just a general consideration when it comes to athletics. We either tend to focus too much on strength, and it becomes like everyone trains like a power lifter or a weightlifter, which is wrong. It's, it's just yeah. not my opinion. The adaptation you get is not the one that you should be looking for. Right. Or everyone does functional training where all they do is like, Stability training, cables, yeah. elastic, just too much of a dichotomy. There should be a right medium where like, you do a little bit of both because they, are, they both have a place in the development of just general athleticism, but you give to each of those methods the right attention at the right moment of the year. And,
1: and if, I, if I understand correctly – uh, combinations of, of that so I've noticed that like in my own work like with the strength training I can bring the strength training up you know real quickly or I can bring it up more slowly and what I find out what I found out is, is bringing it up a little more slowly in combination with jump training or other explosive sure. methods seems to be the method that uh, or the way that allows me to develop the qualities I want faster and, and and better in that sense. So yeah, yeah it, when a younger kid, you know, I let him get stronger for a while. If he's 12 years old, 13 years old, uh, being stronger equals being a better athlete and being faster and all that. And then that starts to slow down and you don't see that transfer as much, even with a teenager. Uh, and so that's where, you know, before that time, before that happens, you should have integrated in some jumps, some explosive work. And what I tell the athlete and and other coaches who ask is those kind of vibe off of each other. They affect each other back and forth, and they keep going up as they vibe off of each other. Uh, Can you talk about that? What's the interaction between uh, jumps and maybe sprinting and the strength training?
0: That's a wonderful question. And I think it's important. It's absolutely important to set the boundaries of, like, are we dealing with athletes that are undergoing growth and moderation or we're dealing with more mature athletes? So if we're looking at the first half of the spectrum, where you're working with kids from 10 to 16, 17 years old, uh, there are th- if you look at the, on- the ontology of human beings, like we develop different physical qualities at different stages in life. Uh, we go through phases of Turgor, where we like, increase our sides, and phases of Procedures, where we increase the length of our limbs. And alongside this change in body mass, we develop first our CNS, So the more explosive side of the muscle contraction. And then later after puberty, we start developing muscle mass as we have more testosterone. That's the same for male and female. It just happens at a different time. Right. It happens a little bit earlier for female, but also ends earlier because they have less testosterone. It keeps going on for males for a good decade or so. Um, And that's what you said. Like when you're working with younger athletes, their CNS is already growing and maturing and developing. So they're already getting more explosive. If you can make them a little stronger by adding some resistance training, that's what you make them already by default better athletes. The problem is that the situation starts to fade off and change after they eat puberty, because at that point, strength and power will both have to be trained at the same time, and they will both have to be implemented to, like you said, feed each other out and keep building on physical qualities that are very similar, because in the end, what you're doing, uh, you're designing interventions that are very complementary. So one side works more on the structural component of the muscle tissue, and that's the heavier strength training. The other side works more on the motor neuron connection. So like the CNS, the motor unit, the recruitment, and that's a more explosive connection. So components. So when you work, when you combine them in the right amount and the right proportion, that's where you develop all physical qualities pretty much at the same time.
1: And that's kind of the aim of everything. Is that I mean, you know, for for us, if we're dealing with team athletes, uh, team sport athletes, uh, you know, that are in high school or junior high school, I I, what I explain to people when I'm doing that is that what I'm trying to do is, yeah, they're going to get stronger. But what I'm really trying to do is create a recipe of strength, uh, explosive work, sprinting, you know, and I'm trying to create a, a recipe that allows for that athlete to play his sport better. Not, you know, it's, it's wonderful that you have measurables in the sense that, okay, he's this much stronger or, um, and and his vertical jump going up, that's a good indicator. But at the end of the day, because we see this also too, with, um, uh, with, uh, NFL would might be a good example with like combines, for example, you have somebody go in and perform really, really well at a combine, but he can't play. Yeah. You know, you see this all the time. The guys who have the records for the 40-yard dash, the vertical jump, they're not superstars. Yeah. You know, and then you got guys like Barry Sanders, who was a good athlete, but he was not phenomenal, but he could change directions like nobody's business, or Jerry Rice or Michael Irvin. Neither one of them were very good athletes. Tom Brady is the classic example. Yeah. He was a terrible athlete. I mean, you know, it, from a measurable point of view, right? Um, So... How do you, uh, you know, can, can can the max effort method is it, does it get applicable to uh, specialized exercises, specialized movements, ones that have high dynamic correspondence, or are they mainly just the catalyst for the nervous system, and then and then the outgrowth of the special movements are not max effort methods, but they're more of the I guess there would be repeated effort, you know, I don't know, you tell me.
0: I think, no, that's a great point. I think there's one condition for the maximum effort method to be used, not just safely, but also efficiently, which is, well, training at high speed, that's kind of a premise, but training through the entire range of motion, which limits by a good amount the specificity of the movement itself. So the max effort method more appropriately fit in just general physical preparedness or general exercises. The moment you become more specific, you start narrowing down the range of motion. You start involving more the stretch shortening cycle. You start impl- implementing more the dynamic effort method, so more explosive movements, more ballistic movements. And that's where like the load just doesn't, doesn't fit anymore because you're prioritizing speed. So I would say it's definitely more of a general approach. And then yeah. it, it becomes more specific as you progress toward... Uh, the, like specific preparation
1: and those high those high uh, loads also are very difficult to implement with movements that you're looking for a very specific motor pattern yeah. that are more finer motor skills so Absolutely. trying to do a specialized movement uh, that has like a fine motor skill with a 90% load is really hard and, and if I understand correctly the nervous system it's easier for the nervous system to to ingrain these the motor pattern, at a lower intensity at a high intensity that's not going to happen it's more of this global effect and not this real specific effect on the on the on the on the motor pattern am am i correct there
0: yes 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 yes
1: so so you're basically looking to it's kind the way that one of the ways that i articulate this and i don't know if this makes sense to other people is that the strength uh you know that maximal strength is kind of like the cpu and then the 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 specialized movements at the lower velocity or higher velocities are more like the RAM, it's like a conduit. You know, you can only experience the, you need a powerful processor for sure, but it is bottlenecked by the, 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 the RAM or the memory uh, yeah. as to how well the computer is working. Does that make sense? Is that a, a good yeah, I analogy? I tend to
0: explain the same analogy with like uh, car engines.
1: Yeah, okay. Like
0: when you do general strength training, all you're getting is just big bigger cylinders. Mm-hmm. But then when you combine them with the specific movements, you get the right mix between gas and oxygen that boosts your combustion. That's what you want to get. It's the same principle. You're just a bigger cylinder without the right amount of gas and oxygen goes nowhere. Right. But the right. moment you start putting them together, that's where you get the most specific response that you're looking for.
1: So the, so the ultimate moral of this story is that max effort training in and, 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 and that way is valuable, but it is not the whole recipe. It's an important ingredient. Yeah. But it is not the whole recipe. And this is where I think it gets lost in the United States, especially is people just get lost in the in the let's get stronger, stronger, stronger without worrying about how is this translating back onto the sport? Correct. Uh, and, and, and is it transferring or does it have correspondence back uh, back to that? Um, OK, so. With. I'm trying to think of uh, once again. I'm trying to make sure that I that, that I articulate these uh, correctly. Um, do you do you tell an a- a- athlete, uh, "Hey, we're gonna"? I don't want to say completely back off a of strength change, but look, you're strong enough. We're gonna do something different. Like you've got plenty of strength. So that's no longer our rate limiting factor. Do you get to that place?
0: Uh, I do in the sense that by testing and retesting athletes, I when I start seeing that strength goes up, but like for instance, just a vertical jump doesn't go up as much. I realize that something is going on, and probably we're we're dedicating too much time to strength training where we shouldn't, and there should be a much larger percentage of more specific exercises. I do back off from strength training, for heavy strength training for sure. It's just I don't communicate that to my athletes for the simple reason that I pump their egos too much. And then they don't want to put the same emphasis, the same effort in strength training. So I do that subconsciously and behind the scenes, but yes, I do it.
1: Okay. So So there's a point in time where it's like, look, you know, you're probably... You're probably strong enough for whatever it is that we're going to be doing. And I don't know that you would need to be any stronger. And and also, I I don't want to go too far out on a limb, but the velocity stuff, the dynamic effort method, does actually go back and affect maximum strength too, correct?
0: Oh, yeah. They feed each other's out. So as long as they're done correctly, uh, the only thing that you can't completely do is just abandon heavy strength training all at once. Like, you right. still have to be implementing you know, it at some point with some some cadence through the off-season or in-season, whatever the case may be. Uh, as long as you don't completely give up on that, they're going to constantly feed each other's out.
1: Okay. So so it, 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 it's used out over the course of the athlete's career, but it, it may become a smaller percentage of the year yeah. or not as big of a focus. And according to uh, some of the different experts that we know in the field, is that they're going to spend a greater deal of their time in special strength?
0: Yes.
1: Yeah. As time goes by, and and this would be like with, uh, we've talked about Dr. Bonderchuk, where he'll he'll spend more time. Uh, he uses a lot of the the velocity based training, but he's also using heavier and lighter implements, and that seems to be like that is the big priority. With an, a sprinter, he might be. Doing more time either uh, using like a sled or, or some of those more fancier. I think it's the 1080 uh, device, a pulley device. Yeah, assisted or, or
0: resisted sprints.
1: Assisted or resisted. And then maybe, uh, and, and it's funny, it's not a new concept, but we're seeing a little bit more with weighted clothing. Uh, yeah. I know that the Exigen out, I think it's in Europe, has been making weighted clothing. And uh, our uh, my friend, and and I know you know him as well, Hank Cranhoff has been using that more with some of his sprinters, uh, as that seems to be like the highest degree of specificity, if you can just load it just a little bit differently, um, that you're going to see a higher degree of specificity. And we've done that here in the United States, actually. Dr. Yeses and I used uh, heavier and lighter basketballs that were like off by a couple ounces. And you could find that the athlete could extend the shooting range and also move the ball much faster as he used those. And that would be something that like a higher level athlete, you know, would uh, let's say like a, a football player, uh, a quarterback, and he might use heavier and lighter footballs. Uh, that's been done a little bit, uh, not to large degrees. The, the the changes in the the weight has to be kind of slight so that the biomechanics don't change. But that's kind of the idea. Is is that kind of how you would envision the athlete's career going, yeah, we'll do some general stuff, uh, and we want to keep it moving every year, but we're probably going to spend more time over here. And you correct me if I'm wrong. And that is going to – some of that general is going to – it'll start to have some carryover onto the specific, and the specific is going to affect the actual event.
0: And everything is 100% correct. And the most important thing is realizing that – when we start working with weighted implements in whatever form you come across, like heavier balls or like sleds or weighted vest, uh, the key aspect is the load is secondary to the movement mechanics, so you don't want to overload the system to the point that the mechanics of movement and therefore the ground contact time, the rate of force development, uh, peak power output gets affected because otherwise you'd be doing the opposite effect, you'd be negatively affecting performance support. sport.
1: And and one of the rules of thumb, uh, w- w- what you just said, and Dr. Yesus has, has said this many to me many times. I think even zatsiorsky uh, mentioned it in his book in 95, he said, you know, the biomechanics can't change because I think he talked about using a running chute at that time. Yeah. And he's like, but the technique can't change. So it can't be enough. There and and, uh, I think Hank Kreienhoff said that one of the other rules of thumb is if it changes the sprint time by more than 10%, it's too much. So it's got to be lower than 10%. And also the other qualifier is that the technique can't change much. It has to be mild, very slight. I mean, there's going to be change, obviously, with a a different load. There's going to be some change. But it should be very minimal to have carryover, correct?
0: Correct. That's what I normally do. Like I used to work with a lot of high school sprinters. And I usually, like let's say that we were training indoors and we only had like 40 meters to sprint. I would be testing their 30 meters to be safe, see what their time was without the use of a sled or a vest or whatever the case may be. And then test them out with a few different weights and find the one that was keeping the time within the 110% of their best. And it's very, like you can, you could base that on body weight sometimes but it's just not as accurate. I, I, I prefer to stay with the specificity of the, of the performance, which is, is sprinting is time yeah. or in throwing is distance, and yeah. then play with that to make sure that you adjust it accordingly. Yeah, that makes a lot of
1: sense. And that's kind of everything that all of the other experts that I've you know, talked to say the same thing. It's, it's kind of a universal. And it's kind of funny though, you see that the balls that be, are used are super heavy and change mechanics terribly. Or, you know, the sled they're dragging is way too heavy, you know, changes everything. Uh, But all the experts say something different. So I don't know where the concept came. I think it's like we always think that more is better always. And sometimes it's not. Specific is better sometimes. Uh, You know,
0: I see that mistake being done a lot when people start implementing medicine bowl work. Yeah. Because they perceive that you're you're moving from a barbell to a medicine bowl with the goal of being more specific. Yeah. If you then start overloading the medicine ball to like 40, 50, 60 pounds, you're defeating your own purpose. Like there's no <laughs> point of doing that anymore.
1: Right, that's the whole point was that it's glider. It, yeah. And you can move it faster. Yeah, right, right. Well, we're getting a little long in the tooth here, but I'd like to hear, you know, what parting thoughts do you have on this? Like how, uh, anything uh, that you'd like to say to the reader uh, on this chapter of, of max effort strength training?
0: I think it would be a chapter that for many people would be counterintuitive, mostly because, like you said, we all are embedded in a system where like strength dominates and the more the better. Uh, it just takes some time to digest the concept, uh, keep reading through the book, get to the other techniques, other methods, start seeing programs being put together and see how the different percentages of exercise change and everything will start making sense.
1: That's great. Thank you very much. So we're, uh, by the time that you've seen this podcast, the book will have already been printed at the time of our talk. It is going to the printer, I think tonight or tomorrow morning. So, uh, the week of, uh, what would that be? January 11th, it should be at the printer. So, uh, Hopefully by the middle to end of January, we'll be shipping these out. So uh, thank you so much, Antonio, for your time. I appreciate your insight on all these. And I look forward to our uh, uh, next podcast uh, when we get to the next chapter.
0: I look forward to that, too. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you.